Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Those are verses 26 to 31 of Psalm 109, which along with Psalm 101 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, November the 17th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look into the book of the Maccabees, the first Maccabees, actually, chapter 3, verses 42 to 60. In the book of the Revelation, we're in chapter 21, verses 9 to 21. And then finally, in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 17, verses 22 to 27. There's a lot in these lessons today. There's a lot of things that that don't come up much in the Christian world in some ways in the in the Maccabees lesson. But it's in, there's an important little piece in here that, that I think has something to say to us about life itself and the importance of sort of normal life um, that we'll run into here in just one second. So Judas and his brothers saw that misfortunes had increased and that the forces were encamped in their territory, the forces being those 47,000 people who uh, had been sent by Antiochus Epiphanes, commanded by Lysias, also <laughs> the Syrian army, also random traders who were now looking to enslave uh, people from from Israel. And so you've got all these forces arrayed against them, and, and they are just this hopeless little band of rebels who are crouched down waiting for what's going to happen, but but they're not afraid. I mean, I'm sure they're afraid. There's no question that there would be some fear in the camp. However, <clears throat> they have good leadership. They have good godly leadership in the, in the uh, form of the Maccabees, Judas and his brothers, they also learned what the king had commanded to do to the people to cause their final destruction. Remember, they're supposed to be just all removed from the land and new random people brought into the land and the, their houses given over by lot to the new inhabitants of the land. <clears throat> but they said to one another, let's restore the ruins of our people and fight for our people in the sanctuary. So as Nehemiah and Ezra had restored the ruins of the city and the temple, now Judas and the others, his brothers, see their task as restoring the ruins of the people. So these people who have been crushed under the boot of Antiochus Epiphanes, their, their job is to restore the people. So the congregation assembled to be ready for battle and to pray and ask for mercy and compassion. And then we get another little poetic um, thing here. Jerusalem was uninhabited like a wilderness. Not one of her children went in or out. The sanctuary was trampled down and aliens held the citadel. It was a lodging place for the Gentiles. Joy was taken from Jacob. The flute and the harp ceased to play. Then they gathered together and went to Mizpah. This is now we've gotten out of the poetry part here. We're this, Now we're in the history again. They gathered together and went to Mizpah, opposite Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was Israel, formerly had a place of prayer at Mizpah. They can't gather in the temple, but there's a place of prayer out here at Mizpah, and so they're going to that place to assemble first for worship, for prayer, and then to prepare. They fasted that day, put on sackcloth and sprinkled ashes on their heads, and tore their clothes. 
and this is an interesting way to say this, they opened the book of the law to inquire into those matters about which the Gentiles consulted the likenesses of their gods. So Gentiles would go to idols. We are going to the book of the law to consult on these same matters. There's something where God has spoken already because he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. And so he knows all these things in advance. He doesn't have to be queried at the end because he foresaw all circumstances. They also brought the vestments of the priesthood and the first fruits and the tithes, and they stirred up the Nazarites who had completed their days, those who had taken vows, Nazarene vows, and they cried aloud to heaven, saying, what shall we do with these? Where shall we take them? The vestments and things. Your sanctuary is trampled down and profaned, and your priests mourn in humiliation. Here the Gentiles are assembled against us to destroy us. You know what they plot against us. How will we be able to withstand them if you do not help us? And so there's this crying out of the people to the Lord, saying, we have no chance if not for you, but we're here to do battle on your behalf and for your people, because we believe this truly is your land, and these truly are your people. And this is not of you in the same way that what happened in the time of Jeremiah, for instance, was was of God. Then they sounded the trumpets and gave a loud shout. After this, Judas appointed leaders of the people in charge of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And here's the part that, I, that I'm speaking about. Those who were building houses or were about to be married or were planting a vineyard or were faint-hearted were told to go home according to the law. So what is this law? And, and it comes from Deuteronomy 20, <clears throat> and it's an important little piece of the law in Judaism, actually. It, it tells you about who is exempt from military service. And, and in Deuteronomy 20, verses 5 to 7, this is what you get. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there a man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And is there a man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man Taker. And finally, the faint-hearted and the fearful are allowed to go back so that they won't cause the, the hearts of the others to fear. You get one bad apple spoiling the bunch, essentially. You got one guy afraid. He's likely to infect and infest everybody else with his fear. But here, that there, Moses provided a way, God provided a way through Moses, for people who are in certain points in their inflection points, I guess, in their lives to not go to war. And that's that's obeyed here by the Maccabees. No matter how bad this is, it seems odd in so many ways to think about them being encircled by these other forces, these enemy forces, and, and to say to the people, hey, don't worry about it. If you've got, um, if you're building a house, if you planted a vineyard, and if you've uh, got a wife or if you're afraid, you go on home. We'll be all right without you. Everything will be fine. Because the Lord provided that for these people who were in this place. They had made plans, and these plans were important plans to to do things that were continuity of life things. But also they had to do with obeying commandments, so being fruitful and multiplying. And and it had to do with different kinds of uh, commandments. But life was intended to go on. there's, There's a confidence in sending these people home. This confidence is we'll be okay without you because we're going to obey the law even though it's going to cost us some people. And it's interesting, it's not actually the only place in Scripture where you're going to find this sort of threefold thing about um, 
about people who are building houses, planting vineyards, and um, taking a wife. And, and you see it in an odd place, and you'll see it in Jeremiah 29. Um, Jeremiah, when he's telling the people you're going to be going to Babylon and, and you're not going to be there a short time, listen to what he says. Think about the things that I just told you that were the exemptions from Deuteronomy 20. So you've got building a house, planting a vineyard, and marrying a wife. So here he is in, in Jeremiah 29, 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. It's an interesting thing. It's the same three things that you see over in Deuteronomy 20. That, that Jeremiah is saying these are normal things of life and important things of life that God wants you to continue to do there. So get out of your heads and stop being concerned about how long we're going to be here. You're going to be here a while, but be prepared. Do the things that are normal in life. And so you're not going to be called on to fight battles during this period of time. God will take care of that at the end. And so these people were sent home at this point that uh, by... Uh, Judas, that they could go home. He says, and then to the rest of them, after that, <clears throat> the army marched out and camped to the south of Emmaus. And Judas said, arm yourselves and be courageous. Be ready early in the morning to fight with these Gentiles who have assembled against us to destroy us and our sanctuary. It's better for us to die in battle than to see the misfortunes of our nation and of the sanctuary. But as his will in heaven may be, so shall he do. It's, it's a beautiful picture of we trust you. We, we are not going down without a fight. But however it is you bring it about, we're trusting in you. And so in this gospel lesson, as they were gathering in Galilee, and what they're gathering for is to, to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so they're gathering together to make this pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for the festival, for the Passover. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and they'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So it's like the first time they actually believed him. Because otherwise, they've been just like, I don't, we don't know what that means. It doesn't make any sense to us. It doesn't fit with what we believe and what we know. And now here, though, they're greatly distressed when they hear this. And then as they move start moving towards Jerusalem, one of the first places they come to is Capernaum, where, where Simon and Andrew and James and John were all from. So they get there, and the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, the drachma, two drachma tax was the, the, essentially for the upkeep of the temple. And so that tax doesn't go to Rome, it goes directly to the temple and had to be paid with certain kind of coin in order to do that. And so they ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? In other words, we haven't collected it yet, nobody's given us the money yet. And he said, yes, because, well, who wanted to get him upset, right? I mean, let's not start this up in Capernaum. If, we're gonna, if this is all going to be a provocation, let's not start it here. Let's at least wait until we get down there. Let's get some peace around here. And so Peter just, yep, sure, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep. And then when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? From others, Peter said. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. In other words, they're not, kings don't, don't tax their children. They tax other people. 
So the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So he is rebuking Peter in a very kind way. You know, this is not the time for that sort of upfront confrontational sort of thing, but there's, a, there's an implied rebuke in there because Peter, remember, is a fisherman. But what fisherman meant was, uh, didn't mean go take a hook and throw it into the water. I mean, he threw nets into the water. He was a commercial fisherman, not a little boy. But Jesus kind of treats him like a little boy here and says, you go fish like a little boy. He, he's being chastised. And so he goes and he tells him, you go down there and you fish with a hook, and you pull the fish up and then open its mouth, and you're going to find the tax. So so God's going to provide for this. But but Peter, has this, he's showing something of the fear that, you're, that you see from him on the night of the trial. You, you see that he, he doesn't want to rock that boat, doesn't want to cause any problems. I'm not poking the bear, particularly not up here in Capernaum. And so this is my home. You know, I don't want to get into that now. And so Jesus knows what has happened. And he makes the point here of making a claim about himself that, I, no, I, the sons are free to the kings of the earth, right? So the, the, you're supposed to see the analogy and the analogy is, I don't pay a temple tax because I'm son of the king. And so it's a, it's a statement about himself, but it's also, all right, we'll avoid this problem. But Peter, Peter knows the implied rebuke in being sent to go and fish to get the tax, because he could have gotten it anywhere, right? I mean, somebody could have given him the money, and he would have paid the tax. But Jesus said, no, I want you to go do this instead. And so he sends him off like a little boy with a hook and a line to go and catch a fish so that they can pay their taxes. Now, Peter had the faith to do it, so we assume that he did, at least, but that was Jesus' response, was to say, all right, it, here's, here's the way you can show faith still, Peter, instead of fear. Uh, they're, they're distressed. The, the disciples are feeling the pressure at this point. In the Revelation passage, remember yesterday that the, the city, the, the new creation comes, including the city of Jerusalem. And so one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates. And on the wall, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Here's the curiosity question. Who's the twelfth? I'm feeling pretty certain that it's not Judas. So whose name is on that twelfth stone? Is it going to be the one that was chosen by the disciples? Or is it Saul Paul, whose name is on that last foundation stone? And the one who spoke with me, the angel, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And this is all sort of Ezekiel 47-ish kinds of language, but it's also, you'll see this measuring thing going on in Zechariah as well as they're rebuilding the walls of the city. <clears throat> so the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. All right, so how big is 12,000 stadia? Anybody have any idea? 
Look it up. What it is is it's 1,400 miles. So this thing is 1,400 miles square and 1,400 miles high as well. It's about 2 million square miles bounded in the city. About 40 times bigger than England and 15 times, 15,000 times, sorry, bigger than London. 10 times as big as France or Germany and far larger than India. And this is just the ground level. But it's also 1,400 miles high. So it's this enormous cube. Um, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven, and in that he talks about, you know, sort of comparing it for people like us in the United States. That, that says a metropolis this size in the middle of the United States would stretch from Canada to Mexico and the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. I mean, this thing is enormous. And like I said, it's 1,400 miles high. Miles, not feet, miles high. It's as, it's as high as it is long and wide. It's unbelievable. If, if you had 12 feet per story, the city would have 600,000 stories. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. So there's no limit to what can be in the city of Jerusalem. So so don't be worried <laughs> that there's not going to be room for you. It's an enormous place. So he also measured the wall, 144 cubits, <coughs> by uh, human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. That's a really interesting thing. He's using, the angel here is using human measurement. It's also the same. And that would be phenomenally thick. I mean, 144 cubits would be about 216, I think it's 216 feet thick. So, th- I mean, this thing is enormous. Nothing could come against it. But but what would, right? I mean, because this is, this is the heavenly Jerusalem. So the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. So you remember there are 12 foundation stones. The first, jasper. Second, sapphire. Third, agate. Fourth, emerald. Onyx. Carnelian. Chrysolite. Beryl. Topaz. Chrysoprase. Jacinth. And amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I mean, it's like unimaginably beautiful and valuable to even think about what this heavenly Jerusalem will be like. And it sounds incredibly fragile, but it's not because it's an impregnable fortress. It is the, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we can trust and we can believe, we can hope. And no matter what happens in this life and on this earth, we know that he is sovereign over all things. And we need not fear. We can be strong and courageous and not be terrified because we know that's what awaits us.